Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start today with a deadly season on the world's highest mountain, Mount Everest. There have been 12 deaths on the mountain so far this year, including, sadly, tragically, a local doctor, Dr. Peter Swart. I've got Jim Davidson standing by to talk about Mount Everest. What a great guest. Let's have a listen to this clip here. Global News anchor Colleen Christie. A Vancouver doctor has died while trying to climb Mount Everest. UBC's Department of Anesthesiology, Dr. Peter Swart, was descending below Camp 4 due to a respiratory event when he died. Swart is being remembered as a warm and caring physician, husband and parent of two grown children. The ongoing summit season at the world's tallest mountain has been deadly. Twelve climbers have lost their lives since April 12th. Okay, that report from Global News. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Jim Davidson. Jim is a world-class mountain climber. He's been to the roof of the world himself, climbed Mount Everest. I highly recommend his book, The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. Jim was on the, on the mountain when that devastating earthquake hit Mount Everest. His website, speakingofadventure.com. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Jim, thanks a lot for coming on today. You bet, Mike. Great to be with you again. It is, it is great to have you here. I'm sorry it's under sad circumstances here. We lose a, a local doctor here, a very respected, very respected physician here in Vancouver, and my sympathies go out to his friends and, and his family. And we heard, like, what is that area like up there What around, around Camp 4? Jim, like he was, he was coming down the mountain, Camp Four. What is that area like around there? Camp Four is at an elevation of eight thousand meters, which means it's cold, it's bleak, uh, it's dry, and there's very little oxygen up there. At that elevation, it's probably about thirty percent less oxygen than there is at sea level. And technically, when you're to that elevation at Camp Four at eight thousand meters, you are in what's called the death zone. And it's yeah. not just a branding term. Literally, everyone up there dies eventually. Yeah, a lot of people may be familiar with that because of the uh, the, air, the lack of air there. And don't you, when you go up there, do you get acclimatized to that? Like, don't you have to spend a whole, a bunch of time at elevation before you start pushing up that mountain to sort of get used to it? Is that what, is that how you do it? You're exactly right, Mike. Yeah. Uh, traditionally, climbers would go to Mount Everest about 50 days, even 60 days before they make their summit attempt and go up and down the mountain. And most people think maybe we climb the mountain once, but really we climb it about two and a half times depending upon what elevation you're talking about because your body simply can't function at that high altitude. So we go there weeks in advance to slowly let our bodies grow more red blood cells to carry more oxygen. And that's why we have to go there, you know, like I say, 50 days before we make the attempt and even still, most of us need supplemental oxygen, which is bottled oxygen. We breathe through a mask, and yeah. it's still barely, barely possible to reach the summit of Everest and get down safely. Yeah, and did when you went up the mountain, Jim, and successfully summited, did you use oxygen to get up to the top? I sure did. I've been yeah. a climber for about uh, 35 years at that point when I went to the summit of Everest, done a lot of high-altitude expeditions, and I still needed that 
bottled oxygen. And actually about 97% of the people who try Everest rely upon that bottled oxygen. Only two or 3% can even try it without. Yeah. Speaking of Jim Davidson about climbing Mount Everest, speaking of adventure.com is his website. Jim, when you hear that number 12, 12 lives lost on the mountain so far this year, that, I mean, where, where does that number stand in relation to the, the typical number of fatalities we see on the mountain each year? Is that, that's a high number? Yeah. And, and when I hear that number, it just breaks my heart. You know, my family, my condolences to Peter's family and the community up there in Vancouver and yeah. to his fellow teammates and the people trying to rescue him on Mount Everest. It's tough on everybody. It's a sad situation. And sadly, that number, it's on the high side. Uh, you know, it would probably put it somewhere around the maybe the fourth or fifth deadliest season ever. But there have been other deadly seasons with even greater fatalities, unfortunately. What is the the typical the most common cause there of of death on Everest? Uh, it's really two or three categories, uh, but they kind of wash into one another. Uh, you know, there's avalanches when the snow beneath your feet drags you down the mountain, and there's also avalanches when things above fall on you like ice cliffs. So avalanches and falls off the fixed ropes and, and off the uh, ledges are the top two, but then the illness would probably be about number three. And all of these are multiple causes. It's rarely just one thing. Somebody may die in a fall, but that may be because they had altitude sickness and they were very uh, not thinking very well. So there's usually several causes combined to cause these fatalities. Yeah, when I've looked at some of the incredible videos that have been shot of people scaling the mountain, I'm fascinated by it. And especially some of these very hazardous sections of the mountain that you have to cross, like the Kumbu Ice Falls, which, you know, to me, just this is the one where the, they put the ladders across these big crevasses of ice and you got to walk across those ladders, right? You did that? Oh, yeah. Everybody that goes oh. up Everest from the south side has to go through the Kumbu Ice Fall. And it is the deadliest section on Mount Everest, even though it's down relatively low on the mountain. Oh, man. What's going through your mind when you're going across one of those little ladders? <laughs> well, I actually grew up being a painter, and my dad taught me never, ever take a ladder and lay it down horizontally and walk across it as a plank. It's not designed that way. <laughs> and so I got brought up knowing that. So to be on Mount Everest and to look at one of those ladders going across those big cracks in the ice, those crevasses, uh, I know we're not supposed to be using a ladder this way. I'm scared of that crevasse, which may be 30, 40, 50 meters deep. Uh, but that's what you have to do in the Kumbu Icefall. And not just one or two times, but dozens of times on each trip through the Icefall. And depending on how you do your trip, you're going to have to make several passes through the Icefall. So we literally cross hundreds of those ladders usually in a given expedition. We continue to talk about Mount Everest here. It's a very deadly season on the mountain. There have been 12 people have passed away climbing Mount Everest, including, of course, local, very highly respected doctor, Dr. Peter Swart. My sympathies go out to his family and his friends. My guest, Jim Davidson, uh, Jim's book is The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day, Finding the Resilience to Climb Again. So, Jim, let's go back now to April 25th, 2015, so a little over eight years ago now, when that earthquake hit Nepal, triggering avalanches on Mount Everest. You were on the mountain that day. Where, where exactly were you on the mountain when the earthquake hit? 
I was at the first camp above base camp. So I was at camp one, which is an elevation of just about 6,000 meters. And we were camped on a glacier beneath two towering rock walls. Okay, can you describe that earthquake? I mean, this is the focus of your book. I mean, can you know, can you put it into words? Like, what, what was, what did it feel like? What happened? It was the biggest earthquake to hit Nepal in 81 years. It was 7.8 magnitude, which is a really big quake. And I'm a geologist by background. And when when you get to quakes that big, they last a long time, like 60 seconds, 90 seconds, and all that shaking locks, uh, knocks a lot of things loose. And that's what happened when this earthquake hit Nepal. It was in the middle of the ever season. Myself and about 180 other climbers were up on the upper mountain. And when the earthquake hit, the walls basically started to vibrate. And we had huge avalanches of powder snow and, and ice come down towards us at Camp 1 and towards other climbers at Camp 2. Fortunately uh, for all of us up high on the mountain, those avalanches did not quite reach us. And nobody was killed at Camp 1 or Camp 2. But the real danger was down in base camp because their avalanche was not just snow and ice. It was rocks, lots and lots of rocks. And that rock avalanche hit the valley and washed across the valley floor almost a kilometer and a half laterally and went right through the middle of base camp. Oh, man. And there were like 22 people died that day. is the deadliest day on, on the mountain. And how did you get out of there? Yeah, it was the deadliest day ever, and there were about uh, 70 people wounded as well. Um, oh. I was up at Camp 1, about 1,000, not quite, about 800 meters above base camp. Uh, we were stuck there for two days. We wanted to get back down to base camp to help out all the wounded and look for the, the dead that were buried under the avalanche debris. But we were stuck because that dangerous section that you and I just talked about, the Kumbu Icefall, it's all ladders and ropes to stay attached to the mountain. All of that had collapsed into the glacier because of the earthquake. So we were stuck, stranded at Camp 2, excuse me, Camps 1 and Camp 2 above me. We were stuck up there for about two days. The helicopters were used to move some wounded down to a local medical clinic, and then uh, the helicopters were used to move us over the Kumbu Icefall rather than through it, because that was impossible to climb through now. Yeah. My goodness, wow. Speaking of Jim Davidson, his book is The Next Everest. His website, speakingofadventure.com, we're talking about the day in 2015 when that deadly earthquake hit hit uh, Mount Everest. Okay, Jim, the focus of your book is what happened that day on the mountain and then your sort of courage to go back and, and try again, to climb climb Everest again. What sort of process was like was that like for you? Like the, was there did you have to overcome fear of going back there? Oh, absolutely. You're very kind saying my courage in going back because uh, it was more hesitancy and, and fretting and worrying before I made the commitment. And frankly, that's something I talk about in my presentations to corporate groups is there, there's no courage unless there is fear. I mean, uh, you're, not, you're not afraid to pick up a pencil, so it's easy. But going back to Mount Everest was very scary to me uh, as a person that had been there and a geologist who knew that it could happen again. So I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I understood the dangers. I'd been there during the quake, and I've, I've lost friends of the mountains. Uh, so I wasn't too thrilled about being back in there. But the mountains give us such rewards. They refine us into a better version of who we are. They build our resilience. Uh, they can make us into a better person, I believe. So I dragged my feet a little bit, but I decided to go back after the 2015 quake, and I returned to the mountain in 2017. Do you? And you successfully summited that year, right? Correct. We went back. Yeah. It was a, a long trip, but it went pretty smooth. And after 60 days, I managed to stand on the summit of Everest 
on a beautiful morning, just about sunrise. Wow. Can you put that into words? What was that like? You know, the last 100 meters, we're, we're moving incredibly slow. You move about 80 to 90% slower up there than you might if you were climbing a mountain at 4,000 meters. But uh, I was moving slow because my body was straining so bad, but also I wanted to soak it in. And that last 50 meters, I could hear symphony music just playing in my head. You can look down on the entire planet, and you can see the, the fourth and fifth highest peaks way down below you at your feet. Yeah. And uh, the moon was overhead still a little bit, and the sun was just coming up. It was truly magical, and I didn't feel like I was big or heroic or conquering anything. I felt very, very small on this planet, but also very grateful to be there because a lot of people helped me get there. Uh, and so I felt very fortunate to, to yeah. experience that magical moment. Hey, Jim, do you think the the mountain is being managed responsibly there by authorities in Nepal. I mean, we hear about the, the 12 people who have passed away this year trying to climb this mountain. There has been criticism that there are too many people are being allowed to climb this mountain. Let me play a, a short news clip here for you from the, the famous Everest traffic jams we've seen of people, long lines of people trying to push to the summit. Let's listen to that and then I'll get your thoughts. It's the traffic jam atop the world, an image now emblematic of a deadly new normal, droves of climbers waiting for their chance to summit Mount Everest. At 29,000 feet, long lines can mean mountaineers are trapped for too long in an area often called the death zone. This season, there are a record number of people pushing to summit, most nowhere near as experienced. It's really an economic equation. Um, you know, Nepal has monetized Mount Everest. The Nepalese government is now under fire for issuing more than 380 permits to foreign climbers, all required to have a guide or Sherpa. Okay, Jim, sadly, just got one minute left here. Do you think they're letting too many people on the mountain? Yeah, I, I, I think if, it's, if we have a lucky season where all the traffic gets spread out, we don't get in each other's way. But in a year with bad weather, everybody goes at the same time. It's like everybody trying to go to the beach on exactly the same time during a holiday. Uh, I think probably the government could manage it better if they required the climbers to have more experience, that is to have yeah. climbed 6,000, 7,000, or 8,000 meter mountains. That would kind of thin out the crowd a little bit. Um, okay. But the, the big crowding doesn't happen every year. The bad days when we've had a lot of bad weather, so everybody's jammed together on the same morning. Jim, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it a lot. My pleasure, Mike. My regards to everybody in Vancouver. Let's talk about electric bicycles now, e-bikes becoming super popular. You see them zipping around town everywhere. You can understand why. I mean, you just zoom up those tough hills around Metro Vancouver. And I've talked to a lot of people who love these e-bikes. Some of them, a lot of people I speak to are surprised how fun they are to ride when they get one. They are, they are hooked. Okay, so now we've got the rebates kicking in now. BC government unveiling this now. Rebates when you buy an e-bike. Now, this will be income tested. So the higher your income, the lower the rebate. But there's some money available for everyone here. i got a couple of great guests standing by. First, let's have a listen to this report. Global News reporter Julie Nolan here. You're going to hear from Captain Matthew Trudeau, too, from the Vancouver Fire Department. Let's listen. So we did have fires in fire fatalities from cell phone batteries, from e-bikes, from e-scooters. A warning from fire officials about rechargeable batteries. This following a blaze in an SRO unit on the downtown east side Thursday morning. Did encounter uh, a number of batteries and the source of the fire was a rechargeable battery uh, that was either for an e-bike or an e-scooter. 
Okay, so talking about some of the dangers there with fires from some of these electric devices, including e-bikes. So I guess you get what you pay for here, right? So make sure you get a good quality bike. Let's discuss it now. we got two bike shop owners on the line. Simon Coots is the owner of Simon's Bike Shop. Hey, Simon. Hey, how you doing? Good morning. Doing good. I'm doing good, Simon. Thanks for coming on. Also on the line, Alex Alvarez. Alex is the manager of the Bike Kitchen. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming on. Hey there. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You bet. Guys, thanks to both of you for doing this. Simon, let's go to you first. Let's talk about these uh, these rebates here now. So let's let's look at the income tested here. So if you are if your income is less than thirty eight thousand nine hundred and fifty dollars. You could get a rebate of fourteen hundred bucks, one thousand four hundred on an e-bike purchase, and that gets reduced according to your income. The lowest amount anyone would be available uh, to get would be three hundred and fifty dollars if your income is fifty-one thousand dollars or over. Simon, what do you think yeah. of these amounts? Do you think this will be a popular program? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, we've already. My phone has actually been ringing off the hook. Uh, in the last few days, people asking questions about it. Uh, they've seen it on the news. They heard the program's going to be announced, uh, or it's, it's rolling out June 1st. They haven't got all the details, so they've got quite a few phone calls. Of people asking me, you know, how it actually works. Um, where you got to actually get investigate a little bit more and see how the actual rebate, actually the checks get sent out. Yeah. But it's been, it's caused huge excitement. And we do have a lot of uh, e-bikes in stock right now. And we have been selling a big portion of our business has been the e-bike business. But um, just on that one announcement, like I said, I think in the last probably four days between the, between the phone and the taxes and the people leaving messages, um, it's definitely going to uh, up the sales by a lot. And people yeah. are very excited about it. So very excited about it. Yeah, for sure. Alex Alvarez at the Bike Kitchen. Alex, is your phone ringing too? Uh, no, phone's pretty quiet. <laughs> we, we primarily um, deal in secondhand goods. So we refurbish old bicycles. So um, everything we receive is uh, donated to us. You know, folks are clearing out their garages and stuff. So uh, you're mainly looking at, you know, bikes from the 80s, 90s, maybe 2000s. So uh, pretty rare for us to encounter the e-bikes. But we've gotten a call or two. Um, you know, I was on the, the radio last week chatting about it so a couple of just curious folks but um no not a area we dabble in so much um it mostly yeah old refurbished things is our is our wheelhouse are there any, are there any rebates for those bikes that you sell uh not that not that i know of unfortunately i believe this e-bike rebate only applies to new bicycles so not a yeah. thing that would uh, affect us do you think there should be a rebate for just regular bikes or used bikes too? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty biased. I've worked in uh, <laughs> 11 years that only deal in secondhand goods. So, yeah, I mean, that amount of money that we're talking for the e-bikes, so, you know, what, 300, 2,400 ish would, would cover all, if not most, of the cost of a refurbished bicycle. So, you know, certainly we would, our, our goal is to keep bikes uh, out of the landfill and, you know, put them back out into the road. So, um, a, a similar uh, effort would be really appreciated on our ends, but yeah, definitely we'd love that. Okay, we heard in that clip, Simon, going back to Simon Coot, yeah, Simon's yeah. Bike Shop, we heard in that clip there with the, the, the Vancouver Fire Department just highlighting the dangers of uh, fires starting from uh, a battery from a, an e-bike. Is that something that you have heard yeah. of or seen? The thing is, is that um, you're dealing in modified bikes, if you, if you actually look at it, 
like I've sold thousands of uh, e-bikes over the last five, six years. We've never encountered a single problem. When they're CI certified or there's a, there's a certification that's done in Europe, and that same certification comes to Canada. But when someone buys an e-bike and they modify it or they modify the parts or they buy something online or they just buy a motor and try and make it themselves or they um, – because all the bikes we sell – they have a, like a management system on it that'll automatically uh, turn the battery off. So we've never encountered a, a single problem with any of the e-bikes that are sold by the reputable companies. But when you're dealing with people that modify stuff, you know, there's always, you know, they're they're not they're not meeting the standards, and that's where the risk huh. occurs. And if you've seen where a lot of the fires have occurred. It's, it's because people, and you can even talk to the firemen, they've modified the bike or they've changed something on it or they've ordered something online. But if you go to a reputable store uh, and, buy the, and buy the bike and they're, they're all approved, um, yeah. we haven't had a single issue. And what, and what you're talking to the guy at the bike kitchen, what they do is fantastic. They actually, I've, we send lots of customers there. They refurbish old bikes. They, I don't think they would do any refurbishing on, on electric bikes. But that, that program that he does is amazing, too, as well. But as far as people working on their own e-bikes or building their own e-bikes, that's where the problem occurs because they're not too sure what's happening with the electrical systems. And when you got lots of rain, you got Vancouver's weather system, you know, anything can happen. But we've had zero problems. Okay, that's very interesting. Alex, do you guys ever get any e-bikes in there or any, any inquiries about them? For sure. So, so I think um, to that point, yeah, the, the modified bikes are really, really the issue here, which is a lot of what we see. Um, so, you know, we're getting folks who are trying to save a buck. Um, you know, they're ordering um, their parts online, putting them together in their garages. And so we're getting bikes that I can kind of hack together. And, and yes, yeah, certainly, you know, we worry about those if folks, we, we try not to store those bikes overnight. Um, you know, we ask folks to take their batteries with them if we are storing them overnight for fear of, yeah, if the fire were to happen, you know, sprinklers go off, destroys everything we got. Um, so, so yeah, we certainly were seeing a lot of those modified bicycles. Um, not a lot of people necessarily coming into our space to, to create them, but, yeah, they do certainly come through. And as far as, like, um, electric bikes being donated, uh, pretty, pretty rare I would say, you know, most folks are, you know, their bikes have been sitting around for five, ten plus years, and at that point we get them. So I imagine, you know, looking into the future, once we see this rebate hit, you know, five to ten years from that, then we'll start seeing some of those bikes trickle in as donations because, you know, they still hold value. You can sell them online through your, your Facebook or your Craigslist. Um, so it's only to the point where they don't really hold their value and people just don't want them anymore that we will start to see them. But yeah, yeah as, far, as far as clientele coming in and riding them, yeah, definitely a big increase in the last, you know, four or five years, I would say, especially once the pandemic hit, a lot of folks, you know, got wanted to get outside and yeah, we see, saw a big boom in the e-bikes being ridden. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I've talked to people who have tried them out and go, whoa, they're blown away by the, uh, the ride experience and how much fun they are to ride. I mean, Simon, you, you know, you mentioned yeah. that your phone is ringing off the hook as soon as these rebates were announced. Like, what, what can you, what can you say about the e-bike? Like for people who are curious, maybe thinking of trying about what, what is the typical customer reaction you hear when people try them for the first time? Well, you know, they're, they're a little bit, uh, scared maybe because they're thinking you know it, 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 it might be a little bit difficult but all the bikes we sell are pedal assist so yeah. yes 
you do have the electrical power, but it is pedal assist. And so it's not like you're, you're accelerating and the bike's taking off on you. You have to be pedaling the bike. You have to be moving. So it's very safe in that way. And some people are tired of the traffic coming and parking downtown is expensive. The traffic on the Lionsgate Bridge getting over the North Shore. All these factors have come into place. And you're right. When you said they're happy to hop on it, wind in, wind in the face, you know, your hair, whatever you want to call it. It's kind yeah. of exciting. And you are actually getting in Europe. They've done a bunch of studies. The people are healthier, happier. Um, they're excited to get outside. You know, they're actually moving. And we're supposed to just keep moving whatever age we're at. We're supposed to keep moving. Right. And it helps more and more people get out there on a bike. And, and with that assist, like I said, I've got lots of older clients. I've got lots of young clients, but a lot of older clients that remember when they rode a bike and they rode it here and they went there with that little bit of extra assist, pedal assist power, you know, they're having fun and they're actually getting outside and moving around. So they're super yeah. happy. Okay, Simon, how much is an e-bike? So we've got these rebates on offer now, be kicking in very soon. Yeah. How much are we looking at for a decent quality e-bike right now, new? Well, we are we start around that, probably around that $3,500 price range. Um, okay. There is a couple that we may sell around twenty six, twenty seven, but the average person walking in will probably spend more than that. And, uh, and if they get the rebate back, whether it's the $1,400 or the $350, I mean... Anything to help with the purchase, they get excited about. So, like I said, I've had the phone ringing off the hook, lots of people asking about it, and then uh, we've got a bunch of test rides set up this week uh, for people that are going to come and actually just try it out and see if it's right for them. But once they try it out, they're hooked. Uh, I was, I was really a little surprised. I was a little surprised when you said you got lots of stock too. I thought I thought maybe your shelves would be empty. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? The, we had the biggest years ever the last two years with the pandemic. The sales were off the hook, and we did buy all the inventory. We actually never closed. We kept our doors open because we do a lot of work for the Uber guys, the food delivery guys, essential service. Uh, we do work for parking enforcement. Uh, we, we do a lot of repairs for the delivery guys. So we do a lot of different work, but right now, worldwide, there's an overstock of bikes. The only type of bike there's not an overstock of is uh, some high-end road bikes. But okay. because the manufacturers have caught up, the demand had weaned quite a bit because every, like, like the bike kitchen guy said, everyone bought bikes during the pandemic to get out. So all of a sudden it just stopped. But yeah. then now summer's hit, the weather's improved, this rebate's come out, and people are thinking again, okay, maybe I will purchase a bike. Because when the world opened up, you know, people want to travel. They want to go do other things. Yeah. Um, some people had a great idea. I'm going to be a cyclist. You know, I want to train and stuff. And then once once, once travel opened up, I'm heading on the cruise ship or I'm going to Hawaii or whatever. They kind of stopped thinking about cycling. But uh, the last few weeks has been, like I said, it's been fantastic. But the manufacturers are heavily overstocked now. talk about the wildfires that are burning in western canada and elsewhere in the country too so we've got fires burning in northern british columbia alberta saskatchewan new brunswick as you just heard in your newscast going through a terrible wildfire season right now what is causing this is it caused by climate change are the big fossil fuel companies directly to blame for the wildfires
That's what's argued in a brand new report that was just published in the journal Environmental Research Letters. This study was a peer-reviewed study. It found that drew a direct link between major fossil fuel producers and the increase in extreme wildfires in Canada and the United States. Got a great panel standing by to discuss this. First, let's have a listen to John Valiant here now, investigative reporter. He's the author of the book, Fire Weather. Have a listen. We've seen a change uh, in northern forests, particularly in the boreal forest system, which is a circumpolar uh, forest system that goes all the way around the northern hemisphere. And what we've had is heating and drying, and those go together hand in hand. And with you've got 50% more CO2 in the atmosphere than there was uh, in pre-industrial times. So this is industrial CO2 generated by fossil fuel burning. Fossil fuels causing the wildfires. Let's discuss it now. Both sides of it for you. Peter McCartney, climate campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Thank you, Peter. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for being here. Cody Battersill also on the line. Cody is with the Canada Action, which is a pro-oil and gas group. Cody, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks, Mike, and thanks, Peter. Okay, thank you, gentlemen, to both of you. Peter, let me go to you first. We see the wildfires that are burning in Western Canada, also Eastern Canada, too. And now this new study drawing a direct link to the fossil fuel industry. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is what we've been saying all along, is that the big group polluters are responsible for the uh, worsening severe climate disasters that we've seen in Canada all over the world in the last few years. Um, you know, there's, for a long time, we couldn't link these events directly to the pollution from this handful of companies that have knowingly uh, caused these climate disasters to get worse. But uh, the field of attribution science is getting better. And uh, we can show that, you know, these 88 companies uh, caused, a 30 se- caused 37% of the increase in the area burned over the last uh, few decades. Um, the heat dome again as well uh, in 2021 in British Columbia was 150 times more likely because of fossil fuel pollution. It was 25 times more likely because of the methane emissions from the oil and gas industry. Uh, so this is we can really make these concrete links now. And I think, uh, you know, this will come up in class action lawsuits when we need to hold these companies accountable for the damage that they are causing. Cody Batters Hill, what do you say to that? First and foremost, my thoughts to all of the families and communities that are evacuated. You know, obviously living in Canada, we have a fire season every year, and my my heart is is with the firefighters and all of our emergency services. We need to remember that Canadian oil and gas companies are Canadian men and women working to feed their families and support their communities, and they're making a product that we're all using. It's not just the supply, it's also the demand. We know that Canadian oil and gas emissions actually peaked eight years ago. Since then, production is up 16% while emissions are down 7%. And we know that oil and gas is powering our helicopters, our water bombers, our fire trucks, and making the protective clothing and equipment for our firefighters. This is a much more complex discussion. Peter wants to blame, 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 without talking about a balanced perspective on the reality of how we all live. And look, this study, their bias and their slant is apparent in their abstract. They talk about fighting Uh, uh, oil and gas producers, the reality of scientific discovery is it's never done in a fight. 
It's done for scientific discovery, not uh, so, so, you know, at the end of the day, the study's fairly upfront about the slant it wishes to take, and we need to have a much more broad conversation. Lastly, know that climate-related uh, deaths are down over 99% since 1920 as we continue to adapt and mitigate. So, yes, fire and climate change is a big issue, but it's much more complicated than just simply blaming Would a you- bunch of Canadians working in oil and gas companies. Oh, okay, Cody, that, that part the, right at the end jumped out at me a bit there. Like when you said fire and climate change are big issues, like, so are you willing, would you be willing to admit there is a link that, that the CO2 emissions that we're seeing from fossil fuel consumption and, and ignition, that is make, those are worsening the conditions for wildfires? Would you acknowledge that? I would say that with wildfires, there's a lot of factors, including how we're managing our forests. We also need to remember that fires can start naturally with lightning. Fires are a really important part of forest management. So there's many factors here. We know that humans are absolutely having an impact on the planet. We know that we cannot make a wind turbine out of a wind turbine. We need to mine it. And everything we do has an impact. So let's keep firefighters in our hearts and prayers and keep these communities in our hearts and prayers. Let's just remember that if we don't produce Canadian oil and gas, we're going to be importing Canadian oil and gas from countries that do not care about reducing emissions, do not care about human uh, uh, progress and and transparency and democracy. We need to be balanced. Peter McCartney, your thoughts? Yeah, what Cody is saying is textbook climate denial. I mean, we know that the climate pollution that these fossil fuel companies, these 88 big polluters are responsible for, um, is driving the climate disasters. And we know that they will keep getting worse until that day when we stop burning fossil fuels. Um, you know, so it's, uh, I think it's pretty hard to, uh, consider the, the communities in, in Alberta and say, send your prayers, um, when you are actively cheering on the industry that is responsible for causing these worsening climate disasters. It's, um, you know, it reminds me of the, uh, the, gun situation in America where you say, oh yes, we're thinking about you, but you're still, um, doing the thing and allowing and fighting the policies that would prevent these well, climate disasters from getting that. Go ahead, Cody. That's an abhorrent analogy, Peter. Um, we uh, know for a fact that Canada's biggest fires um, were pre, uh, you know, like six, I believe five or six of the biggest, uh, biggest seasons ever in Canada were 20 years ago. Um, we know That's not true. that there's no for oil and gas to power these firefighting tools. And, you know, you can't address the things that I said, so you called me a climate change denier after I've acknowledged I'm pro-wind, solar, and all energy, and climate change is real. Climate change is a problem. But what is the technological solution that you have today to power a helicopter that's bombing these fires with water? There isn't one. So we need to be honest and pragmatic. Denying the physics of our energy systems, the balance that's required to support Canadian families and all Canadians, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, rural, urban, in our daily lives. We need to continue okay. to work towards new energy systems, but we're not there yet. Okay, Peter, local. Peter, quick quick response from you, and then we'll fit a break in here. Go ahead. We are there. We have the technology to power everything we need with renewable energy, um, battery storage, there are uh, airplanes and helicopters that fly using electricity. Um, we can do this, 
And, uh, you know, Cody is just going to keep on saying that we can't until we've already done it. Um, so I think we should ignore the people that are pushing for uh, pollution to continue and for these climate disasters to get worse. We may not be able to do this tomorrow, but we need to do it as fast as we possibly can. And that requires us um, okay. to leave fossil fuels behind. Okay, it's our fossil fuels debate. Is the fossil fuels industry causing the wildfires burning in Canada right now? Got both sides of it for you. Cody Battersill, Peter McCartney. Let's go to your phone calls. Rob in Chilliwack. Hi, Rob. Go ahead. Hi, good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Good, good. So, so the question I have for Peter is, uh, okay, does he believe, first of all, can I ask him quickly, do you believe the world goes through cycles, Peter? Weather cycles, yes or no? Just quickly. Hello? Sure. Yes. Okay. So we had a heat wave two years ago coming up. That dated back to 1937. How is it possible that, that we broke that record when we didn't have near the population, near the amount of industry in Canada, and not near the amount of automobiles, not near the amount of industry happening? Can you answer that? And if you're so, you know, you're so bent on the, the, the denigration of oil and fossil fuels, how is it that we're going to have to mine all these metals and minerals to produce batteries? If, you know, okay, okay let's, let him, let's let him respond. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, I mean, there have been climate disasters for a very long time. Uh, we are obviously more prepared for them now uh, with things like the invention of air conditioning, um, you know, real-time weather monitoring and that kind of thing. Uh, but the science is extremely clear here, and this research that we're talking about shows it, that these disasters are getting worse, and it's because of the climate pollution we've put into the atmosphere. Um, I mean, when it comes to mining for uh, battery technology, we can, like, there are mining equipment that is coming out that uses battery storage technology. It's one of the things the oil and gas industry is touting um, in their efforts to, quote-unquote, reduce emissions by uh, at their own facilities. And so, look, this is doable. We know it's doable. We have the technology, and we know we have to do it. It's not an option. Um, so okay. we need to do it as fast as possible. Cody Battersill, go ahead. I just want to remind everyone that oil and gas emissions in Canada peaked eight years ago, although production's up since. And climate-related deaths are down 99% in the last 100 years. Peter said we can't get off oil and gas tomorrow just before the break. I honestly I appreciate his honesty and his agreement with what I've been saying. Peter is against nuclear power. He's against hydroelectric power. He's against oil and natural gas. What is the solution? Because the technology is not there. You've said on previous debates that we're not ready. The technology is not there. Battery storage is not there. And yeah, we're going to have to mine many, many times more volumes of minerals and metals. And what about when the wind isn't blowing and the sun's not shining? We need all of the above. And when we are talking about hey, okay. fires, I just yeah. repeat, as of 2020, the six worst years for total area burned of forest fires in Canada was, were all before 2000. Oh. And in Alberta, the annual numbers of fire peaked in the early 2010s, and there's a large variability in the area burned. Okay, There's many, so Pete, many causes, fire suppression, interface with humans, lightning, weather, climate change. It's all a part of this, but we can't just cherry pick w one thing and not have an honest intellectual okay, conversation. Peter, Peter, I think I heard you try disputing some of those, some of those arguments here. Go ahead. Yeah, so oil and gas accounts for 28% of Canada's total greenhouse gas pollutions, and it's the only one that's growing um, that share. So... Um, you know, I think that 
We, we, when you talk about the causes of wildfires, all of those are happening in a climate-changed world. You know, a lightning strike that maybe caused a small fire 15 years ago is going to cause a massive fire. Um, and it's because of the pollution that we have put up into the atmosphere. And these, these just keep getting worse. Like, do we want to just keep seeing um, wildfires destroying entire communities like Lytton, like Slave Lake in 2011, you know, Fort McMurray in 2016. Uh, we're going to see more of that, and we're going to keep seeing more of that until the world is able to stop burning fossil fuels and then draw down the climate pollution that they've already put into the atmosphere. Okay. So I want to know, are these yeah. companies going to pay 37% of the bill for these rebuilding these communities for people who have been put out of their homes? Um, because that's what, the, that's what we need to be talking about is, holding these companies accountable for the pollution that they have uh, put into the atmosphere for decades, Cody, what, knowingly Cody, causing what, this problem. Cody, what do you say uh, to that? I mean, the six largest number of areas burned in Canada were all 20 years ago or larger or, or, or earlier as of 2020. So, you know, Peter's talking about the companies again. Yeah, men and women who are going to generate like a trillion dollars for our country from 2000 till 2032. But what's the alternative? We're all using the, the alternative product. is wind and solar and renewable energy. I've been saying this again and again. I don't know why you don't understand yeah, what the alternative allowing is. Allowing firefighters to fight these fires caused by nature and caused by humans, it's much more complex than you make it out to seem. You've acknowledged we can't get off oil and gas tomorrow. You've said battery technology is not yet there. You're against nuclear, hydro, all these other carbon-free, low-carbon forms of power generation. It doesn't add up. Okay, but so... so so, Peter, we just sadly, we just have a minute left here, guys. But, Peter, like you're arguing that that these technologies like wind and solar that you mentioned, that it is possible to ramp those up quickly and to and to and to meet these targets. It absolutely Correct. is. And like the research is there on that. Stanford University has done a renewable energy profile for every country on Earth. There are lots of countries that are doing it already. Um, again, Cody will just keep saying it's not possible until it's already. And so. Uh, we have this. We need to move as fast as possible. And uh, renewable energy can do this. Um, and it needs okay. to. Talk about the latest cyber espionage operation targeting Canada, the United States, and our allies uh, out of China. So this has been described as a Chinese state-sponsored cyber espionage operation code name vault typhoon that's the name that's been identified by cybersecurity agencies and also by microsoft so microsoft blowing the whistle on this and microsoft disclosing that they had detected this operation this cyber espionage targeting u.s infrastructure got claudio popa standing by to discuss first let's have a listen here to the president of microsoft this is brad smith well, what we found was what we think of as uh, network intrusions, the prepositioning of code. Um, it's something that we've seen uh, in terms of activity before. Um, you know, we do work hard to track this kind of activity by nation state operations from China, from Russia, from Iran, from North Korea. Those tend to be the principal four. Um, this does represent the focus on critical infrastructure in particular, and that's obviously of real concern. It's a real concern for sure. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Claudio Popa. Claudio is a cybersecurity expert. ClaudioPopa.com is his website. 
Very pleased to welcome him back. Claudio, thank you for coming on today. And thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, you bet. Claudio, every time we talk, there's there's a new cyber threat. There's a new identified group here. Volt Typhoon is the, the rather unique name of this one. What should people, what's it, what is important for people to know about this operation here? I think the important thing for people to keep in mind here is, and, and this goes for individuals as well as companies, it's that we must all remember to update our operating systems and not just on our computers, but on our routers as well. So many people go to the store, they buy a router or they're even given uh, routers by their uh, uh, telecommunications provider, uh, whoever that may be. Um, we need to remember that in some cases, those devices may be uh, vulnerable and uh, any opportunity that you have to update it, do so um, after verifying that obviously the pop-up is real and not some kind of a scam. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting to hear Microsoft actually blowing the whistle on this, and you heard a clip there from Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, and he goes on to say that they believe that in public disclosure, when they detect these type of cyber threats, what do you think about that? Like Microsoft blowing the whistle saying, hey, look what's going on here. I think that's really interesting. It follows a certain trend of these publicly traded companies getting a different type of exposure. Last week it was Meta, Facebook, uh, that um, identified another threat and exposed it. And as a result, um, they wanted a little bit of uh, exposure and they quite frankly deserved it because it was uh, the kind of spam that, that, that can, uh, that can uh, harm uh, computer systems. And again, in this case, Microsoft has the visibility. They've got eyes, uh, pun intended, uh, all over the world. And so if they can contribute to the kind of visibility that the five eyes, um, the, the five countries of which Canada is a part, then uh, we certainly welcome that information. It's just yeah. we will need a little bit more detail uh, if we're going to be advising companies and individuals to act on it. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point because there's a lot of sort of missing pieces here on this warning that has been issued. I mean, some of this stuff sounds really serious and scary. Like the U.S. State Department here has put out a note, a statement, saying that... Uh, the U.S. intelligence community says China is capable of launching cyber attacks that could disrupt critical infrastructure in the United States, including oil and gas pipelines and rail systems. You know, so, so at the same time, we're hearing that warning. You've got China saying, you know what, this is all just fake and it, it's all misinformation and <laughs> it's not happening. Of course, they always deny it. Right. They always deny when these type of go, go ahead, Claudio. Absolutely. Um, and by the way, we've been receiving that kind of advisories about Russia and Iran uh, for years, uh, saying that, you know, they can access uh, critical infrastructure and potentially disrupt power plants and water desalination plants and, and train stations and and so on. Anytime you have connected systems, um, whether they be industrial or uh, commercial, you've got the uh, vulnerability, which which um, really boils down to something very, very simple. 
is it a known vulnerability or is it an unknown vulnerability? And unfortunately, governments have taken to collecting unknown vulnerabilities and launching them or using them against other governments or against other companies. And so it seems that a lot of the panic revolving around this Volt Typhoon had to do with some undocumented vulnerabilities within the routers, within the the network devices that have been compromised. And that's why this is actually a public advisory, both for individuals and for companies to simply remember to update their software whenever possible and to be vigilant. I mean, it sounds like a very generic uh, piece of advice, stay vigilant, and it almost sounds like fear-based uh, advice, but if we think about it, we really just need to remember to patch our systems and communicate or raise awareness about cybersecurity management, um, both at home and and at work. Especially since we have so many people working from home. Yeah. Speaking of cybersecurity expert Claudio Popa, Volt Typhoon—that is the code name for this new cyber espionage operation. And Microsoft and other officials pointing to China as the origin of this. How um, how prepared, like I think it's good advice, update your security, update your operating systems. How, how prepared do you think pri- big corporations are and government institutions? Like you heard this warning from the U.S. State Department that they could be going after pipelines and, and rail networks. How prepared are they and how hardened are these systems to resist these type of attacks. I mean, you work with you work with uh, your partners all the time, Claudio, on this kind of stuff. Are, are some of these companies like woefully behind and vulnerable? That's an excellent question. Um, and, and yeah, I, I work with industrial control systems uh, as part of uh, something called OT, which is operational technology. This is the technology that um, everything from uh, the pipelines to smart buildings uh, operate on. So the OT security uh, of this is is important. And uh, the truth is that every year, the operational technology and industrial security world is getting more secure. So things are improving. There are industry standards for all of these uh, types of technologies. And unfortunately, a lot of uh, companies remain behind the times. So a lot of them have not necessarily updated their systems because they think, well, these don't operate on a regular network. They operate, instead of an IT network, they operate on an OT network, you see. Um, so they think that they're secure, but they're uh, they're unfortunately not. And, and that's part of uh, my job to raise awareness and um, and try to, to help these kinds of organizations to become more resilient. So that was an excellent question. Um, things are improving is, is what I can say. We're just not there yet. Claudio, it's always great to have you on. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from nine to noon on nine eighty CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, Mike at CKNW.com. Thanks again for listening.